How's everybody doing tonight? All right, this is exciting. Thank you all so much for coming. It's a real honor and privilege to have you all here. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit different tonight. Rather than do what is the norm, and perhaps what I've done many times before, which is get up and tell you all about this book that you already own, <laughs> I thought we'd do a bonus round with one of the guests, one of the people who was interviewed for Tribe Mentors. So I'm going to welcome him to the stage in just a moment, but I'll read the bio first while I wrestle with the audio. And uh, here we go. One of, my, one of my favorite people in New York City. So I'm excited and we'll be asking questions I've not asked him before. So this is a rare live edition of the Tim Ferriss Show in some ways also. Here we go. Tim Urban. Who is Tim Urban? Twitter, Facebook, at waitbutwhy, waitbutwhy.com. Tim Urban is the author of the blog Wait But Why and has become one of the Internet's most popular writers. Tim, according to Fast Company, has captured a level of reader engagement that even the new media giants, or that even the new media giants would be envious of. Today, Wait But Why receives more than 1.5 million unique visitors per month, among them Elon Musk, and has more than 550,000 email subscribers. Tim has gained a number of prominent readers as well, like authors Sam Harris and Susan Cain, Twitter co-founder Evan Williams, Ted curator Chris At uh, Ashington, that's one of my buddies, hi Chris, Anderson, uh, and uh, brain pickings Maria Popova. Tim's series of posts after interviewing Elon Musk have been called by Vox's David Roberts, quote, the meatiest, most fascinating, most satisfying posts I've read in ages, end quote. You can start with the first one, Elon Musk, the world's raddest man. <laughs> Tim's TED Talk, Inside the Mind of a Master Procrastinator, has received more than now, I checked it yesterday, 25 million combined views. Please welcome to the stage the incredible, the brilliant, and handsome Tim Urban. I feel like this is, this is like your birthday party and I'm like stepping in the middle and I'm like, it's very uncomfortable. Well, you know, I said, what other Tim can I bring into the fold for those people who are maybe a little older like I am? This is the T2, the improved version. It's a Terminator reference. All right. So I figure we'll jump into it and what we're going to do is we'll have a conversation, which mostly involves me just asking him questions. And uh, then we'll jump into this fishbowl and answer some of your questions. And then after that, we will have the opportunity. We might be here for a while, so I will not be offended if people are like, peace, I'm out, I don't want to wait. Uh, but we will have a chance to say hello and people who want to have photographs and so on. We'll be able to do that. Okay, let's just jump right into it. All right, wait but why. Before wait but why, and you and I chatted a little bit about this, I guess, Feels like a couple of nights ago, but maybe it was yesterday. I can't remember. It's been a big week. Uh, you blogged casually for six years or so on the side. Could you tell us about that blog? What subjects did you cover? What characterized what you did part-time for six years? It, uh, so it was called Underneath the Turban. So that's a little thing that I came up with. Um, and the turban? Yes, because my name is Tim Urban. I, uh, I, I was 23. It I wasn't taking a second. It right. was not a serious project. <laughs> um, and it was very much a side project. I, um, it was actually, I think I can credit it because credit the fact that it was a side project 
for why I was um, actually able to kind of be productive because I didn't have this pressure to do it. I was like, you know, what's my voice? Who am I as a writer? I wasn't a writer. I was just doing something else. I was going to blog to procrastinate from the other things I was supposed to be doing, which liberated me creatively, actually. I was able to kind of, you know, do my own thing and, you know, kind of find my voice and be, you know, kind of uh, a little bit, you know, courageous at times. Um, and I think, um, I think so, so for someone like me, is actually like, it was like I tricked myself into... Uh, actually doing stuff that I normally probably would have, um, you know, been a little bit more belabored in trying to get it going. But, uh, yeah. What type of subjects? Was it, was it similar? How was it most different, and how was it most similar to Wait But Why? Yeah, so it was very much more like a, a blog blog. You know, I'd write about my day. I'd rant about, you know, going to uh, the store, and then they had uh, McDonald's there, and then they, I was like, don't get the six-piece nugget, you know, get the four, and then I ordered the ten, and then they actually had... At the end of the night, so they give me 18, and then I eat all 18, and that, it was like that kind of like story about my day, uh, very much like just the top of my head, just typing, publishing, you know, um, and uh, it never, it was, it was a small little passionate following of like 700 uh, people, and like six comments on a thing, and that was that, and it was, um, it was this side project, but it was a way for me to actually write like 300 blog posts over a six-year span. What were the, were there any seeds from that experience? that then informed Wait But Why? And why did you create Wait But Why? Yeah. And where's the name come from? Yeah. So, so um, I, I was able to kind of hone my voice through writing 300 blog posts. I look back at the early ones, and I, I wince at, like, the tones I was using. So it was, you know, I, 300 blog posts will teach you what you like to, you know, the voice you like to write in. Um, and uh, so that's one thing. And then I also, like, towards the end, I s- decided one night to try to draw something, um, and I kind of said, let me, you know, I was going to try to depict this concept I thought was funny when someone, you know, it's like doppelganger day on Facebook and someone posts a doppelganger that's way better looking than they are. I always think that's kind of hilarious. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to draw like a stick figure that's kind of messy looking and then like a handsome stick figure with like a wave of hair. And I, so I did that. And it hit me that I, like, I, I was like, that would be better in drawing. And I realized I liked that. And so I discovered that there, too. So when I started Wait But Why a couple did of years. Did other people also respond positively to that? Or did very, you just? Yeah. They did. Okay. Yeah, it got great feedback. And then I started just every post. Like, it was like the last seven posts on the blog all had drawings. It was like I discovered that at the very end. So then it was time to you know, start a new project. Why um, was it time to start a new project? Why not continue writing about the chicken McNuggets? Good no, question. No, no, it's not. I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm no, sorry. no. <laughs> It's fair, and I and I also write about chicken nuggets sometimes. Sorry, this family programming. Not sure. Sorry. Uh, no, I um, I it, it was uh, I, it was time in my life in general to like turn all my attention, not a third of my attention, to one creative project. It was always I'm doing something with my full time, and then I'm doing these like two creative projects on the side. I'm gonna be a pain in the ass. I apologize, yeah. but that's my nature. Why was it time? Like, what realization or conversation or getting fired or whatever catalyzed the yeah. decision? You know what? It's, it's time for me to put all my eggs in one basket creatively. It's this thing you do that makes me love your podcast. It's stressful being the person. <laughs> <laughs> Just learning this for the first time. Um, but, um, no, so for me, it was actually, I spent years from the age of 22 to 31, like, hating myself a little bit because I was burning to do something creative, whether it was writing or music or something. Uh, and, um, and I always was doing them on the side. You know, I, I, it was like that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of just leap of faith 
in my own kind of ability to do something creative full time, it took me nine years. Nine years that uh, that I uh, wasn't very happy. And so I finally said, you know, I, I, this is I, I have to do something full time because I, I always thought if I could just do something full time, put all the energy from all of these things into one thing, it would go it would go well. So I decided, you know. Um, I actually owned a business with my friend, and it was the fact that uh, the business got into a decent enough spot that you know we were able to start something new, and kind of that's when I jumped on. What was the business? It's a test prep company. You know, this is a great business. I have to say, it is low overhead, simple, like a monkey can run it. It's good. Yeah, Soman Chainani, who's a very successful novelist, also got his beginnings. It's a good starter. A good like starter business is something. Adam Robinson as well. So three people in this book. That's crazy. Just yeah. putting it together now. Who knew? Who knew I was on to like the starter business idea? I was just <laughs> procrastinating from my music career. Is actually all I was doing when I started because I was tutoring on the side, and then of course you know the other side things ended up taking all my time, which is what a classic procrastinator would do. Um, but yeah, just simple kind of you know you, you, the, 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 each session pays for itself. You don't need overhead. You know, you, at the beginning you don't need any full time employees and. So we, but we had built it up to the point where we had good full-time employees, uh, good enough to run, um, run it kind of without both of us there. Um, and so it was time to start something. And we'd done this a couple of years ago. We started the podcast app back in 2011 with the theory that podcasts were just going to get bigger, and they did. Unfortunately, we didn't know how to build a good app. We built a bad app. We shouldn't, shouldn't build a bad app. Um, but, we, but now it was a couple of years later, and it was time for something new. And I said, I'm going to jump on this and say, I need to do something creative. Let me see if I can do it as also a business that, like, we can kind of own together. You can run our tutoring company. I'm going to go and start something. And, you know, I was, it was between kind of like writing a musical, which is a terrible business. I wouldn't want to drag him into that. Or writing maybe a, a content website. That's, that can, you know, a platform, media platform. That can, that can be a business. So that's why, that's why we settled on that. I knew those were things I could do creatively well. And so we settled on this. And the, the premise was like, what if I took, instead of five hours a week to write a blog, 60 hours a week to write a blog, what, what will happen? Um, I took the things I knew that I had gotten good at on the other blog, which was just kind of writing colloquially um, and, uh, and drawing stick figures, and uh, started it from there. What is the origin of the name? Uh, 16 hours on GoDaddy searching for dot-coms. <laughs> um, and, man, there's not much. There is not much. Uh, but I knew I didn't... I, 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 uh, I wanted it to be something that wouldn't pigeonhole it into, you know. <laughs> All right, so, I mean, were you just typing in random combinations of words, or is there some itch that you had related to the expression? I mean, do you have a habit? I was imagining, oh, it's because people would say something to you, and you'd want to test the assumptions, or you wouldn't accept it at face value, so you go, wait, but why? You know, that was in my head how I, I explained it. I wish it, I wish it was that uh, situation. <laughs> I checked 2,000 things in GoDaddy. 150 came out. Uh, my girlfriend knocked out 140 immediately. It was like, absolutely not. That leaves me with 10, where I was kind of like, okay, uh, these are all bad, which is the least bad, which if the site's good, it can seem kind of cool suddenly, maybe, but it starts off bad, but then it's not bad. And um, some of the other ones were just extremely embarrassing, so I'm just... Uh, wait, wait, you can't dangle that hook in front of me. Were there any that I can give some examples to, if it makes you feel any better, of book Please. titles that are horrible? Uh, but were there any that you really liked that your girlfriend shot down? You were like, we can both do this embarrassing thing, actually just you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, okay, I'll kick it off. Uh, so there was, for 
what ended up being the four-hour work week, there was lifestyle hustling. Glad I didn't use that. There was drug dealing for fun and profit, which was promptly vetoed by every retailer. (laughs) Thank God. Uh, There was broadband and white sand. I mean, it goes on. It goes on. So sometimes you need life to save you from yourself. Those are kind of good. Those at least are sensical. Like they, they, they have some kind of, I understand two of those three at least. <laughs> All right, I'll take two out of three. That's partially because I'm giving you like the better of the worst. Yeah. Um, but near turn. Miniatureking.com. <laughs> I was in a deep GoDaddy spiral. You know, you, if you've ever been on one of these, it gets weird. It gets really weird. So I'm there and I'm like, I'm like into this idea of a king because I pictured the playing card king and I'm like, so a miniature king and I suddenly got obsessed with it. I was like, he has little legs and he's very angry. He's very like cranky and there's like big adult people walking by him and he's on the ground. He's like two feet tall and my girlfriend was like, Jesus, absolutely (laughs) not. But I got so addicted to the king concept that when I started Wait But Why, I made the logo that's, a playing card. You know, I was just thinking... And he pissed off. That's amazing. Yeah. You were like, okay, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I still kind of think Miniature King could have worked. Just, just saying. Was, uh, you know, he's the mascot. He's, he's cranky. And, and anyway. Yeah. I like it. All but, right. but since then, I've all... You know, what you can do... Oh, this happens all the do time. Do you still own yeah. MiniatureKing.com? Uh, I own MiniatureKing.com and about, like, 15 others. Yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, Jesus half bro is going to do a, a site which is I'm Jesus's half brother, and how he's like, but he's not like the, the divine one. He's just like born from like Jesus's mom with like some guy, and he's and he's upset. What, what could go wrong with that? Yeah, he's got all kinds of all kinds of psychological issues going on. You know, he's it's just he's, he's a lot. He's trying to figure out his career. Anyway. What what were if you look back? Cause I look back and I remember the first. My first attempts at blogging, like the first 12 posts, and I mean, they're, they've thankfully mostly been forgotten over time, uh, but what were your first, you had, you had more practice than I did, you'd already put in 300 reps, what were the first posts like, do you remember any of the topics? Yeah, well, so, well, with my early blog, I mean, the topics really, it was like, they started with like three sentence things, so I, one of the, like the first three was, you know, the title was Frankly, and then it said, like, if peeing in the shower is wrong, I don't want to be right. Um, that was a blog post back in the day. Um, flash forward six years, now, wait, but why, I, I, I knew more. And I, and I, I knew right away it was going to be, like, long and thorough, because that's, I just, you know, it was at my own site, and I had, a, you know, I knew I could get into depth um, if, I, if I, you know, could just, you know, go longer. And so, first, at the beginning, I was anonymous, and I'm sure you dealt with this, too. At some point, you know, you have to... It's the, the get attention phase. So I, um, uh, anonymous, the only platform, marketing platform I have is my personal Facebook page. Um, and um, I started with uh, seven ways to be insufferable on Facebook, which sounds like a BuzzFeed headline, but it was like much more in depth. Uh, it like got into the deep, you know, dark psychology of why, like, you know, like, like the, why it's the wild west of social etiquette and why we're all like our very embarrassing version of ourselves on it and what the different, like, qualities, the negative human qualities that come through on it. So that was the very first one. I actually went to Easter Island for a month before I started Wait But Why to just alone in the middle of nowhere write blog posts and pick, like, my favorite one to put on first to just kind of, like, 
figure out what I, and that was the winner. Why did you pick Easter Island? Um, I like the fact that you could take like a 2,000 mile yardstick and swing it around the island and not hit any people. Like that was cool to me. Um, it was just so isolated, plus like the statues and the whole thing. Uh, and I was kind of like, uh, I've always wanted to go. I was either there or I was going to go to Lithuania in the winter and just creep out some small village. Yeah, well, well, uh, you can tell me a small village to creep out sometime. And they were just going to, and I actually talked to someone and they're like, you may actually like, arise, arouse suspicion if you're like this like, foreigner like, working every day in the cafe. I'm just writing blog posts mm-hmm. in yeah. isolation in a small Lithuanian village. Yeah. Uh, Sounds like a George Clooney spy movie. Yeah, but I uh, do want to. I do want to do that in the mid dead of winter. To go to like a small, like cold village somewhere. But anyway, so yeah. how did the blog post do that one? Um, it did well. The very first one, like I, I chose well. Um, it, it. How it, did you choose it relative to the other ideas that you had? Trying to do some combo of like something that I thought was like true enough to me that represented like the kind of quality I wanted to do, but also that we, we could go viral. Just the beginning. Uh, how can we go viral? Because what that's year, the, what year was this? Twenty thirteen, summer of twenty thirteen. All right. Yeah. So that post did really well. It got five hundred thousand uniques in the wow, first month. That's a yeah. My whole last longer. blog got two hundred and fifty thousand uniques in six years. So this was like okay, longer, like getting into more serious topics and insulting people. Like you know, it's <laughs> it's, it's on to something. Plus, you know, I, what I didn't know at the time was that twenty thirteen was a pretty magical year to be promoting content on Facebook. Uh, this was that. Facebook has decided, let's show everyone just how powerful we are. Mm-hmm. And they started, made, this is why BuzzFeed exploded, then Upworthy, you first heard of it in 2013, Viral Nova, these sites exploded because Facebook's algorithm basically said, anyone posting content, we're going to show it to half a million people. I was in the right place at the right time, and, and so that was very helpful as well. Uh, yeah, yeah I, just to, to maybe underscore one thing, because, uh, for instance... When I started my first business, it was the golden age of Google AdWords. I mean, it was shooting fish in a barrel, so inexpensive. And then when the 4-Hour Workweek launched, it was at the same time at South by Southwest when Twitter was effectively publicly debuted. I mean, there were big screens displaying all of the tweets in the world going on, which happened to be concentrated right in Austin, Texas, because it was so small. And I would say that any time is the right time in some way, right? So these opportunities we're talking about, there are these opportunities right now. You just have to try to sniff them out or to shoot in the dark and hope that you'll catch some tailwind. But uh, everybody has, it seems with these stories, some element of luck involved, but you can improve the odds. So that's just... Well, right, there's like 10 waves, you know, uh, throughout your time. And one of the waves is cresting when you're starting. You don't know which one, but something is cresting at the time. It's the perfect time to start something for some reason Always. Right. And in every story where you find a component of good timing, there's usually a component of bad timing, right? Like podcast app, like you were paddling for the right wave, you were just doing it years too early. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I want to bring another figure, another character into this picture. Who is Winston? Can you tell us about Winston, please? Winston's a close friend of mine. I met him in 2005 uh, when he was three months old. Um, I purchased him, and um, we've lived happily together ever since. He was the size of a golf ball at the time. Now he's the size of a football, which is a huge upgrade for him. Um, he's a tortoise, if you um, But he's, um, he's very lovable. He's, uh, he's kind of my apartment screensaver. Like, I'm just sitting there in a, what would be a, just an you know, still scene, and there's this, like, 
moseying things, <laughs> little moseying dinosaur that moseys by. And who doesn't want that? You should all own a tortoise. It's weird that you, most of you don't own a tortoise. <laughs> Why did you name him Winston? Because I thought he had a Churchill look to him. <laughs> or it's more that Churchill has a tortoise look to him. <laughs> I'm sort of imagining the, uh, and I know they're not the same, but like the sea turtles in Finding Nemo. It's like, yeah, I can see that. Maybe a... Yeah, with, with, Winston has less charisma, but otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I look at some of your posts, and I've had my, my life very directly and profoundly impacted by, by some of your writing, uh, particularly about time remaining with, say, parents or family. But when I look at some of your very research-heavy posts, and it feels funny to call them posts, uh, whether it's on AI or other topics that confuse a lot of people. I mean, we're talking about for those of you who don't have any familiarity, in some cases, 50,000 words, 70,000 words. Uh, that's a book, everybody. How long is the four-hour work week? Four-hour work week, uh, that's a solid... Now, it's deceptive to use page count, but that's how I think. It's about, I want to say, what, 420 pages, 430 pages, and it's not gigantic uh, Dr. Seuss print. So it's probably closer, if I'm guessing, taking a stab to the 100,000, 120,000 word mark. Uh, I seem to have sort of word inflation with the books, <laughs> right? They're getting bigger. But when, you, when you're tackling one of these posts, what are some of the approaches or questions you ask that allow you to write something better and different? Because presumably... Many people are out there trying to learn about these various topics, and yet you put out these posts that are the size of books that end up going viral, and you make complicated or seemingly complicated topics very digestible. So what is your approach to tackling a topic like AI? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's pretty simple for me. For, first of all, like I just, just I do this kind of weird thing where I assume that my audience is I picture like a stadium full of meat so it's narcissistic fantasy you know but it's like you know it's just I'm just writing for to, I'm, I'm writing the exact post that I would be thrilled to get right so I'm just trying that's my focus group right there it's right in my head and it's easy because like you know we're all kind of like special unique people except not really there's like a hundred thousand copies of each of you out there somewhere and the truth is like you know if I just write for me, there's a lot of people that have my exact weird taste. I just know that. So I start there with kind of like, who am I writing for? That, that makes it easy. Uh, and so with something like AI, if there's a 1 through 10 scale of how much you know about something, 10 is world-leading expert, and on, you know, 1 has absolutely never heard of the term. Um, you know, I started at 2 or 3 on most stuff, like most laymen. I'm a layman, right, at everything. Um, and... So then I spend, just out of my curiosity as the driver, I pick topics I'm excited to, to dig into. And uh, I'll spend however long it takes. Sometimes it's one day. Sometimes it's three weeks. Sometimes it's three months. But I'll take as long as I need to uh, to learn enough to get me to maybe like a five or a six out of ten. You know, I'm not going to get a PhD. I'm not going to spend five years getting myself to an eight or a nine. But I'm going to get myself to a six where I'm like, I can answer basically any question a layman asks me. I can do a Q&A with an audience on this topic for 10 hours, and I'll have a pretty good, solid answer to everything. Not that I know necessarily the truth of everything, but I know when the 
experts don't know the truth and they're arguing. I know what the experts say about basically everything. So I get myself to that level. And then I think about, okay, so experts have sometimes a hard time explaining because they haven't been into two in decades sometimes. And they have this jargon and they don't remember what it's like to be a two out of ten. I was there three weeks ago. I know exactly what my readers know about this. And I know exactly what, so I just look at the, the road I went down to get myself to a six. And I think about, you know, what, how could I do that road way more efficiently if I could go do it again now? How could I do it in a much more fun way? You know, and what's, what, what's this fun story I can tell to bring readers from the two to a six? And so that's my challenge then is to basically package the road I just went down for three weeks and make it an hour and a half uh, package instead. Okay. Not surprisingly, I have some follow-up questions. Uh, let's pick a subject. Have you written about cryptocurrency or blockchain? Not yet. Oh, perfect. So Highly requested topic. Right. I'm sure it is. Now, the reason I ask is that much like AI, I have seen dozens of people attempt to explain without misrepresenting cryptocurrency and blockchain. 101 for the masses. And it seems like almost every single attempt has failed. If you were to take that assignment on, where would you start? So I would, I, I'd always, I always start, I feel like I'm blindfolded in a room and I'm just trying to figure out where are even the walls here? You know, where is the furniture? I just want to start and understand what I even need to learn. So I want to get a picture of the topic and then I can start diving in, going on various rabbit holes and, and usually going outside the topic. A rabbit hole outside the topic is procrastination, but it also often, you know, it gives you even more context. Uh, you'll find some metaphor out there that you end up bringing back. So I'll just read and read and watch YouTube videos uh, all on the internet. How do you search? So um, Reading, are we talking, you start at Wikipedia? Is that ground zero? Yeah, I'll start at Wikipedia all right. uh, for just a basic foundation. Wikipedia is good at telling you where the walls are, just letting you even understand the topic in general. Um, and Wikipedia has a lot of good, good knowledge on it. So I'll go there, and then I'll go to the bottom of Wikipedia and start clicking on all the, the re reference links. Um, and I'll you know, usually Google, like, you know, blockchain PDF, and you end up finding all these superbly boring you know, journal articles. Um, and then I'll go on YouTube. There's a lot of good people, smart teachers, explaining stuff on YouTube. They're not going to explain the whole thing, usually. They're going to explain one part. Maybe I realize that to understand blockchain, you need to first go down three layers. You need to build a foundation that begins with understanding what encryption is. You need to understand how encryption works in public keys and private keys. That's when you can start to, on top of that, build an understanding of what a ledger is that would be on these different computers and how it could possibly be secure. And by the time you get to blockchain, you're like eight layers up. But, um, so I'll go find a YouTube video not on blockchain, but on encryption. And then I'll find a, a YouTube video explaining what ledgers are in general. I'm reading about the history of ledgers and where they're used in the world and you know, encryption and where it was in, you know, how it was invented and how it's evolved. And you just keep doing this. And the reason I, it's easy for me, this part, is because I'm super curious. So the more, the more I learn, the less icky the topic gets. When the topic gets un-icky, it gets, starts to be super delicious, the opposite of icky. Um, and, then I, and then I can't read enough. Then I start to, it's so fun suddenly. I'm like, I get it. And then I just want to like fill in the knowledge and I want to, Watch a YouTube video I already know the answer to just to feel good about, oh, man, I already knew everything he's saying. This is great. Um, but it solidifies. You hear seven different people articulate it in seven ways, and you just, it just rounds out your understanding. And, um, and by the end, they start to be like, I, I totally get this. Finding, I find a video on YouTube. So last I checked, which is not recently, 
Uh, YouTube was the second largest search engine in the world. It's a lot of great stuff. There's also a lot of nonsense. How do you search? So what are the terms? How do you sort them? How do you go about picking properly? Well, so in, in Google, it's I just I will Google like blockchain. Leave that in a in a window. Open a new window, and I'll Google um, uh, Bitcoin. New window. Ethereum. New window. Cryptocurrency. New window. Like decentralized systems. Crypto. New window. Like crypt, cryptocurrency is bullshit. New window. Like. Um, you know, whatever, and I'll just keep going. And, and, and I'll just think of anything. And then each one of those windows I go back to, and I just hold down command, and I just click, 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 click. And I have 10 tabs, 10 tabs, 10 tabs. And I just go and read everything. So that's you, Google, you know, again, you know, I'm not, I don't have to discern. I don't care if this Gizmodo article is going to be, you know, really useful or, you know, whether it's going to be accurate. Because it's, the, the beginning process is just if you read 70 articles that may or may not have validity to them, uh, the total sum of them, actually, you start to understand what, what do we know as a species? Where are we all agreeing? And then where, clearly, a lot of people don't know what they're talking about. Or there's this broad, you know, there's this, this kind of dichotomy of a view in this one area. There's these people and there's these people. YouTube, it's kind of the same thing. I'll just start watching without discerning. Again, if you're a procrastinator, it's fantastic because you, you don't feel bad about just watching endlessly when you're taking all of your time and it's not what you're supposed to be doing. It feels great. So... Um, I'll, just, I'll just watch, and then, of course, the sidebar starts to figure out. You, YouTube very quickly, and, and Google will very, figure out what you're doing. And then YouTube will start to put all the things on the side for me. Plus, you start to see names you trust. Make money in cryptocurrency. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, even just, it's funny, I'm just running a post now on, like, won't, won't get into this, but, like, you know, political stuff. And, you know, normally my sidebar is, like, look how much of an idiot Trump is and his voters. And then I go to the, I'm, I'm now trying to, you know, I was Googling all these conservative things because I'm writing about, you know, both sides of stuff. And. Suddenly, you, the internet starts to indoctrinate me the other way, and they're like, "Look at this like wise Trump voter, like embarrass this like." And I, and I look over, and I'm kind of like, like, and a couple hours later, I'm like, "Trump's the best, like, you know, this guy." <laughs> so like, YouTube figures out your angle, and it will start to kind of like feed you stuff. Um, and then there's certain names you trust, you know, Hank and John Green, like I trust them, you know, Kurzgesagt, I trust them. Um, CGP Gray, I trust him. So certain, you know, you'll see certain names you trust. Minute Physics, great. So um, there's also that. You know, same with, same with um, you know, Google, of course. Like, I'll trust certain sources more than others. And once you've ingested massive amounts of information and you've established a basic map for the territory, what do you think are the tools or approaches, anything at all, that that help you to be so good at teaching these subjects in, in, in the way that you present it or structure your pieces. Yeah, well, so again, the starting point is I'm like, I just went through this and I had to teach myself. And I was bad at teaching myself because I didn't know what I was doing. So now if I could, I, the experience of a learner is fresh in my head. So that's the first thing. It's helpful. Um, but then I just, I always basically, with almost any explainer post like that, I just zoom out, helicopter up. Like, you know, if you're, if you're looking at um, the land and you see kind of like a, what, a beach, you don't know what it is. Is, it, is, it, is, that a, is this a huge lake? Uh, is, this a, is this a little beach? And then there's, does it curve around? I don't know. That's how I feel like a lot of the articles on AI or cryptocurrency are. They show you a piece of beach, and, they, and, 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 the, and the author might have a full understanding, but you just look, you're, they're, just, they're just describing the beach. And 
So you take a helicopter up and you're like, oh, okay, wait a second, this is a big river, and there's a, and you go take up further, and you're like, oh no, this is a, this is kind of a tributary that goes into the ocean, and and now you're kind of up where airplanes go, and maybe even the International Space Station goes, and you're like, ah, okay, this is actually what's going on. So I start there myself as a thinker, and then when I'm trying to explain, I'm just going to start there, which is why. You know, people make fun of me because like, I'll, I'll write about three different things and they all start at the Big Bang by the time I'm like done with them. I have to basically go back to them. Um, but like, sometimes like, it's helpful. You just, like, you just, um, by the time you get from the Big Bang to now, suddenly it's like we're all, like, we can see the whole coastline and now the beach suddenly makes sense. And then I try to make it fun also because who wants to like, it's so many, you know, like the journal articles, for example, the experts, like they're often just, they don't, because they're not writing to entertain, you know, and they're just, and it's just bad. It's like textbooks in school were so bad. They were so boring. Part of the reason I like YouTube is because the people who end up with a lot of views on YouTube that are going to end up, you know, on, on my recommend, recommended thing, they're, they, they have an eye for entertainment. So I try to do the same thing as well. And if you were to ask, say, friends of yours who are fans of your writing, what your ingredients for entertaining are, what might they say? Or to, just to ask you, I'm just not sure. I don't want you to, yeah, be, overly, I I don't want you to be overly self-deprecating. I'm just trying to figure out. <laughs> um, um, yeah, what, what, what makes it entertaining? Because it is clearly entertaining. Well, I, again, entertaining means 10 different things to 10 different people. I get, you know, every, every post, yeah. I get nine emails from, like, you know, mothers in Kansas angry at me for swearing. But, like, you know, it's, it depends on, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's um, I think, trying to add sense of humor into basically everything, treating it light. Um, good metaphors, uh, you know, and I, for me, lots of visuals. I'm a visual learner. I, I, if I see a block of text and I'm just scrolling down, I'm kind of upset. It's like feels like homework. But if I scroll down, and every few paragraphs there's a chart, there's a comic, I'm suddenly like, okay, this is fun. I'm, I'm kind of excited. Like, and so that's how I think. So I try to do that. That's what I would want. So I like, I like, um, you know, like it, there's so many things where you can just do a funny stick drawing or a really good diagram, and just it's just way clearer and sticks in your head more. You know, if I'm going to talk about procrastination, I can talk about, like, the, the, the limbic system and, you know, talk about, um, you know, how it works and it's our fight or flight zone. Or I can make an instant gratification monkey and, like, because that is essentially what it is. And that's more memorable and, I think, more fun to read at the time. So you, you've really, in my opinion, uh, exhibited a, a mastery for taking what many people would consider extremely intimidating subjects uh, many of them involved in forging what we're going to experience as a species as the future. So I'd like to talk about the future for a second. And I want to read a quote here. All right. <laughs> Believe that you wrote or said this, so correct me if I'm wrong. I always thought the future would be intense, but now I think the future is going fully fucking crazy. <laughs> okay. So what are a few things that you're excited about or see coming down the pike in the future? It doesn't have to be one or two. It could, it, be, it could be many. It is going to be crazy, and here's why. So the first thought a lot of people have um, is that it's naive to think that the future is this oh, weird, the end of times. Everyone thinks that, you know, you know, you're just another naive person that thinks they live in a special time. And the reason we all have that instinct is because we're, biology moves very slowly. It evolves very, very slowly. So 50,000 years is nothing in biology and evolution. So we barely changed, meaning we are still a baby born today is a baby that is perfectly optimized to live in a tribe in Ethiopia in 50,000 BC. And it is, everything about it is ready for survival in that world. 
But what we've done is taken that baby away from its home planet and brought it to another planet, which is the Earth in 2017. And that baby isn't made very well for this world. None of us are. Okay, so, so the, the first thing to think about is just uh, that a lot of our instincts and a lot of our you know, intuitions are actually going to be inherently wrong. We're going to be living in a delusion that was helpful back then that today just is, is not great. So the, reason, the way you can cut through this and actually see reality when you're the ba- that baby is not it's not seeing reality isn't helpful to that baby fitting in with the tribe is and believing what the tribe believes is so today um, we want to see reality and so you can do things like you can just look at the facts sometimes so imagine that the it's gonna be a long answer um, imagine that <laughs> I have a lot to say about this imagine that the, this is what I'm saying it's a zoom out this is a, it's a thing, answers are can't be short in my head so. Um, Imagine that human history is about a thousand centuries. Get comfortable, folks. Get, settle in. Um, a thousand centuries of human history, a hundred thousand years, okay? So each two centuries is a page in a book, okay? How many pages is this? About 700 pages. Okay. Well, 500 pages. Let's see. Actually, you know, whatever. It actually, I made the math easier. No, 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 no. They're finding older human remains, so fine. So 140,000 years, every page in this book that you're holding is 200 years in human history, okay? Um, so page one through 650 of that book, Hunter Gatherers. If you're an alien reading this book to understand what happened on this planet, you are bored. I mean, this is really boring. <laughs> page 650, 10,000 years ago, you have the, the agriculture revolution. Okay, wait. So suddenly people are coming together and forming cities. Okay, they're starting to actually form larger civilizations. They have a collective intelligence uh, that's starting to form. They can sh- compare notes. They can kind of create a knowledge tower that like is bigger than any one of them. It's very interesting stuff. So that's 50 pages ago. Then it gets boring again for a while. Okay, Page 690 out of 700, right? You're a little tiny end of the book here, you have Jesus. You have, you know, 693, you have uh, the advent of Islam. The Roman Empire happens two pages ago. It's already done. Um, 697, you have imperialism. For the first time, you have countries. There's this new thing that happened in the last three pages. Page 698, um, you have uh, the Enlightenment, you have the Renaissance, you have things like this. They, they discover that there's galaxies, telescope. Page 699, you, have, uh, you, you finally get to the beginning of the U.S. and the beginning of kind of constitutional democracies, right? Now, page 700 happens, which is from about 200 years ago to today. Okay? So the beginning of page 700, the alien turns the page. Industrial Revolution happens, okay? Big deal, big change, okay? And as he reads down the page, things start to go crazy. You start to have, you, you, you have, in 699 pages this alien has read, this boring-ass species has, has <laughs> communicated through letters and talking. Uh, you know, he was excited about language 500 pages ago, now he's bored. Um, smoke signals, firing a cannonball in the air, stuff like that, Okay. Suddenly, on page 700, we go to the space station. I mean, we have the space station, we have the moon, we have airplanes, we have cars. Just on page 700, 699 pages, okay, we have, uh, we, we only communicate through, well, it's, it, you know, we have this kind of, you know, simple uh, transportation, uh, communication. Now we have, we have FaceTime, okay? We have, you know, we have, we, have, we have telephone, we have the internet. I mean, crazy, right? Less than a billion people for the first 699 pages. On page 700 alone, we crossed the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 billion person marks. So the alien's reading, and like his, his wife comes in and is like, hey, we're, we're going to have dinner. So he's like, shut, 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 shut up, shut up. This is the most inter- riveting thing. He's like, what is about to happen to this species? This is, this is crazy, what just happened on this page. This is when we're born. We're born at the end of page 700. Okay? So... <laughs> yeah.
why. And someone said, What's, what do you think the future's gonna be like? I'm like, oh, page 701? And they're like, how is this guy talking? Page, page 701, there's no way. It's not gonna Shit just goes bonkers. Yeah, the first three sentences of page 701 will take us to 2025 when they predict that, like, you know, uh, AI is gonna basically infiltrate every single industry and part of our lives the way electricity did in like a 10-year span in the 1880s. I mean, that's the first three sentences. So to me, I see revolutions, you know, pages, the first half of page 701, the first quarter of page 701, I see revolutions in, uh, you know, VR, AR, I see revolutions in AI, I see revolutions in brain-machine interfaces. We're going to be able to think thoughts to each other. It's way cooler than language for the first time. Um, we're, I see revolutions in genetic stuff. Your grandkids are going to be like, so, so you, you just had a baby and hoped it was a good baby? It's going to seem crazy. It's going to seem so primitive. Um, and you can just go on and on and on with things that, oh, look, oh, how about this one? Okay, what are the major leaps for life Like that you can count on one hand for all of life? Simple cell to complex cell, big one. Complex cell to multi-cell, big one. We have animals now. Ocean to land, big one. I would say the fourth that fits on this same list is going from one planet to multi-planets as a civilization. That's happening in the next decade with SpaceX. No one's talking about it yet, but they will be. I mean, just the fact that like we're going to witness in our lifetimes one of the great leaps for all of life. Like this isn't normal. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about extraplanetary. Um, just a couple of of, of uh, curious notions that have been bouncing around in my own head. Uh, if you had to bet on more humans inhabiting, say, Mars, or inhabiting space stations that don't have to conquer a separate gravity, where would you bet? Because uh, there are competing camps, or at least uh, technologists who are looking at, say, inhabiting other planets, or saying, no, that makes no sense, because now you're dealing with a separate environment, gravitational field, et cetera, we're going to just build space stations. Yeah, I'd say Mars for a while... Uh, Mars is probably going to have a million people, you know, in the next five or six decades, and then it'll eventually probably end up at a billion people. But uh, I think space stations in the long run, way better. I mean, it's going to seem really crappy to be on a planet. Uh, it's going to be, you know, being on a planet is going to seem very old school and very kind of rough compared to the space stations. We can, you know, you have to imagine dealing with weather. It's going to seem crazy that you'd have to deal with weather, that you had to deal with things like climate change. It's just not, not our problem. You have to deal with bugs. My, I'd be so happy that there's no bugs on the space station. So, um, so I think in the long run, that. But I have a more important question, which is, are you going to go to Mars? No. No? Well, not in the near term. I don't want to be the first monkey shot at the first to Mars. One. I'll let quite a few people work out the kinks okay. on that one. I mean, we can't even figure out how to upgrade iOS without replacing I <laughs> with fucking images. Like... <laughs> I'm going to let someone shoot me to Mars? No, no, not early, no. Okay, now picture is 20 years from now, and the last, you know, every 26 months, you know, Earth laps Mars, okay? And they end up next to each other. That's when you have this window to go. So every 26 months, there's going to be a fleet, a colonial fleet, heading there, and another fleet coming back, bringing people back. Round trip tickets. Um, how about... Although different people on the legs, right? Yeah. No, no, exactly. And there's going to be like first class things. It'll be like fancy people. But everyone will be like j- jumping around, bouncing around with the gravity. It sounds great. Like a zero gravity cruise ship. So question is, for you, uh, it's 2038, okay? Right. It's 2045. And it's, uh, it's been proven for the last like 20 trips back and forth. No one's gotten hurt. It's totally safe. Would I visit? 
Yeah, yeah. What's the total time invested at this point <coughs> in the transportation? Let's say the first, the shortest round trip you can do is a 52-monther. <laughs> uh, I would, I would strongly consider it. Okay. I heard, I heard Jeff Bezos say recently on stage, you know, before you think about going to Mars, spend a month in Antarctica. Yeah. That's a cakewalk. Oh, Antarctica is way better than Mars. Yeah, not much in Antarctica, but 15 or 20 degrees colder. You can't breathe the air. Uh, you can't be outside in the sun without a radiation suit. Um, yeah, so I think it depends a lot on the brochure of Mars Club Med that I receive. Yes, it's not good. <laughs> uh, all right, shifting gears a little bit. AI, do you think it is an existential threat or not? And if so, what is the time horizon for becoming a a imminent existential threat? Um, so this is the, one of the great questions. Uh, you know, I, AI is probably the subject I've talked to most experts on. So I'm not an expert, but I really know what the experts think, and I try to keep up to date because they change their minds a lot. Uh, so <laughs> no, we'll be fine. No, we're all dead. No, we'll be fine. No, we're all dead. <laughs> I, what I find is very few people who don't think this is going to basically take over everything. Uh, the question is when and I was surprised that even the people that are pessimistic, they kind of think, oh, it might be 100 years from now. Uh, most people think 50, 30, and people at DeepMind these days at Google, which is like the leading AI company now, they're saying things like 10. And this is, when I say 10, 10 till what? I'm talking about um, bef- you know, before any of this moment happens, it's gonna, there's, to understand AI, you have to think about two things. There's narrow intelligence and there's general intelligence. So humans have general intelligence. We are smart across the board, okay? We have, we have social skills, we have creativity, we can understand math, we can read, we can be creative, we can learn from experience. You just name, it, name anything, humans can kind of learn how to be smart there, okay? But when you think about um, AI, AI is way better than at any human at the things it's good at, like chess, it's the, the world chess master, right? Of course, and it's the, it's the world master at everything that it does well, but it's only good at that one thing. So there's AI in your phone, there's AI in your car, there's AI running most stuff at this point, but it's only good at one thing. So the question is, when will AI become, gain that same breadth that we have? When will it become broadly smart? And until then, it's still going to change the world. It's still going to take a huge amount of jobs and, 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 and create a whole, you know, a whole bunch more. Um, so it's going to be a massive group of changes that happen even before we get general intelligence. But the question that I was referring to before is when do we get to this level where AI is now smart like we are, but way, way smarter, what Nick Bostrom calls super intelligence, where it's, it's as smarter than us as we are than monkeys. Yeah. So basically, if you picture like, not only can a monkey not like build this room, or not only can, you know, when you look out in the night sky and you see little lights moving around, you know, humans are so smart, we put those there. We put airplanes and satellites in the night sky, right? So not only can a monkey not do that, um, you can show the monkey the lights of this building, and you can't, you can't even understand that you did it. It just will think that it's just there. That's just this moving star, right? So we're talking about something that not only can we not do what this thing can do, we can't even understand that it did it, even if it tried to explain it. That's how smart this thing is. It's a really crazy concept. So things that we think are hard, like... Curing disease, poverty, you know, climate change, name it, you know, anything that we consider a challenge, uh, easy, piece of cake for the AI. So that's the really exciting side, and then there's the what if we're not in control of it the way we want to be. Not that it's going to be evil, that's this anthropomorphization that people do, they try to apply human stuff to this thing that's not human, but when you build a house and there's an anthill there, you're not like, ha ha, 
death to the ants. You just built a house and they were in the way, so you killed them. Big deal, right? The, the, the fear is that the AI is doing its thing and that it just, we're kind of in the way and it, we programmed it in a way that we didn't think of this thing, but now it's too powerful, we can't change it and, and we're toast. Or it gets, it gets annoyed that we're doing something to it that it doesn't want and we're toast. So you have some high stakes here. Uh, and which is why, basically, we're going to have God on Earth because we can play God to every other animal right now, even a chimp. Chimps are really smart until we put it in a cage. Now what are you going to do? We have a gun, we have a taser, we can poison its food. Chimps uh, are nothing compared to our godlike ability because we have a little intelligence gap over them. Little in the scheme of things. When this thing has a big intelligence gap over us, it truly can play God to us. So the question is, is it a good God that could solve all of our problems or is it like one of those dick gods in the Old Testament like that guy? <laughs> So this is, what the, this is what they're talking about. This is why AI safety is so important, but most of the money and time is going into AI development right now. So la last question, and then we'll go to, go to audience questions. Uh, how do you view happiness, just to bring it back to things that we may be able to influence, <laughs> at least speaking for myself and a lot of people in this room, uh, how do you view or define happiness for yourself, if you do it all? Yeah, well, I, I kind of think of um, there's two kinds of happiness that you have to kind of deal with both. One is like micro happiness, like are your Tuesdays good? Are you generally having a good Tuesday? Uh, and then there's like macro happiness, like are you present? Are you like, yeah, I'll dig into this current life for 20 years, I'm, I love it. Or are you like I was for nine years after college, which is like, well, I'm doing this now, but I really want to like, I should be doing, you know, and that's macro happiness. So I think you have to worry about both. I think that the most important one to get right at the beginning, at least, is uh, macro. I think if your macro happiness isn't there, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have um, you're gonna you're gonna feel frustrated, kind of. You're gonna have a cloud over you. And then I think you can work on micro happiness, which is about lifestyle. This is what you're so good at, and so I think a lot of people here, you know, really both for both kind of happinesses, they they like look to you because you have a lot of good advice. But I think with micro, you really you you focus so hard on like just really crushing like a Tuesday. And, and I think, like, but, that, but all life is is literally a Tuesday again and again, and then you die. So like, crushing the Tuesday is good. It's the thing. title of my next book. Let's get good at it, right? <laughs> White sand and Tuesdays. Um, but so, yeah, and, and the, the, but, but, but the hard thing that's hard is a lot of times we, ass we assume that it's the external world. We have to succeed. We have to, you know, get, get this relationship, and then we'll be... And, you know, this is kind of cliche, but we know that it's, 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 the, it's messing with your internal expectations. It's getting your mind in the right place and, and, and kind of seeing reality and get, seeing what, what is your ego and what is your fear and what is kind of, you know, worrying about judgment and what is actually real that matters to you. And, and realizing that a lot of the perceived risk isn't really dangerous and a lot of the perceived reward isn't really gratifying. And it's all there in front of you if you can just look past your primate self with your very rational, you know, intelligent self and just see it and then learn to internalize it, often suddenly the happinesses are, you know, become very clear how to work themselves out. And, it's, uh, and often we end up spending all our time trying to, you know, get to those happinesses with the, the primate kind of self in charge and that usually doesn't get us there. So to add to that, reality minus expectations. Is that a useful framework for defining happiness, do you think? Yeah, I mean, if so, you just say you know your happiness is like an equation. Reality minus expectations is your happiness, and um, and so you can work on two things. You can work on improving your reality, or you can work on not lowering, but kind of like 
refining your expectations to reflect what actually matters to you, which will almost always end up with them lowering in a certain sense and maybe, maybe going up in another sense. But, um, you know, the classic trap, of course, is like, you know, you're in a way better place than you were 10 years ago, but you're just as unhappy because you're it's the hedonic treadmill concept. is this term that psychologists use that, you know, you just, your happiness goes up because something really good happens. Even like, you know, the little examples, you get a new, you buy something new and you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, my iPhone X 10, whatever. And you're like all happy. And then like, you know, every day that, that goes down and six days later, it's just your stupid iPhone again. But we use this in a macro sense. You get the new job. You finally get into a really good relationship. You work it out. Or, you know, you have a sick friend or a parent, and then they, they get healthy, and wow. And then um, instead of just, you know, so the obvious the way to, um, to, to get off the treadmill is, is obvious. Just obsess over gravi- gratitude. There's like what I have and what I want. And like if looking up, you're going to be really unhappy. And if you keep, you know, the mountain keeps growing underneath you, but you're not even looking at it. You're just looking up all the time. It's going to seem like everything sucks. If you're looking down, you're like, look at this mountain. It's amazing. Look at all the things I have. Like, you're going to be really happy. So, like, the, the gratitude things are real. Like, all the, you know, the thing where you're supposed to write the three good things that happened that day, uh, every night before you go to bed, write three good things that happened and why they happened. The reason that people want you to, that psychologists say this is good is because it trains your brain to all day be thinking, wait, what's good? I need to do this thing tonight. Like, it's just, what's good? What's good? And you suddenly are looking down at all these things that are good in your life, as opposed to kind of looking up at what sucks? What sucks about this situation? How is the world wronging me? Which is a pure recipe for unhappiness. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to put a, uh, a little icing on top just to, just to add to that, which is I was reading recently about some of the supposedly objectively assessed happiest places on Earth. And if you look at them, three of them are Costa Rica. masculino, <laughs> perdón. Okay, screwed up my gender already. It's bad to do in these days, huh? All right, at least I did it in Spanish. Uh, so, moving on. I'm going to move, move on quickly. Costa Rica, Singapore. Any Singaporeans here want to shout? Okay. Uh, I'm all for it. You don't see it as much in Singapore. And then Denmark. All right, so... All right, well, you can, you can write a letter. I, I love Norway, but I, I, will, I, will, I will rely on National Geographic. You can write them an angry letter. Uh, they are very communicative. That's fine. So Norway also. But I can only speak... I can only speak to the Danes, but I will give you the official gold medal, uh, but the silver medal for the Danes, and I, I want to point out a couple of things, knowing people in all three places, that in Singapore, there's very much an optimization for improving your reality, and it's very sort of achievement-focused, and there's a large economic component. Nonetheless, the various combination of factors lead them to be on the very top. On the perhaps opposite side of that equation, or at least in the alternate side, you have the Danes, and I know a lot of Danes, and I remember at one point, without even bringing up any of this, I said, you guys are apparently really happy. Why do you think that is? And as a group, they said, we have really low expectations. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's interesting. Hmm. And they noodle on that. And then I think Costa Rica is kind of squarely in the middle in a lot of respects. Uh, so... Stuff to ponder. Work on both. And also, it just struck me that given all the talk about stoicism and so on that I tend to beat people over the head with, uh, stoicism in a lot of respects I would view as a complete 
philosophical system that checks a lot of boxes, but does focus quite a bit on refining your expectations and preparing for the worst case scenario. So I often add quite a healthy dose of Epicureanism and so on, which is more on the opposite side. In any case, uh, Tim, thank you so much. And uh, we're going to jump into some audience questions. I know that's... Yeah, please give a hand. And uh, we will definitely be doing some individual hellos. Uh, but let me jump in and see what we have here. And uh, I suspect there might be some curveballs slash bear traps that I don't want to step into. So let me see what we have here. Bear with All right, uh, you're 20, have three to six months pre-job post-college. All right, I take that to mean three to six months after graduation to do whatever. No financial social commitments and you've already read Tim's books. All right, thank you for that. <laughs> How do you spend your time to maximize well-being and develop perspective? Amon from Paris. Well-being and develop perspective. Three to six months. Now, you may have already done this. Where's Mon? Is Mon here? Hey, how's it going? All right. So you may have already done this, but if, if I were giving advice to the normal American audience for that, I would say travel for those three to six months. Go to countries where you do not speak the language. Get deliberately lost in places that are safe, perhaps, like Japan or Costa Rica in most places. And... For well-being and developing perspective, well-being would mean deliberately exposing yourself to people who are worse off, maybe at least financially, than yourself. So spending part of that time volunteering, for instance, in those three to six months, and then that will simultaneously help you to develop many, many different perspectives. That would be just, as speaking as someone whose life was changed completely by a number of overseas experiences, which I had starting at age 16 or 17. I'd never really spent time outside of the US. That would be my recommendation. Uh, Tim, do you have any other, any other thoughts? No, I think that's uh, right in line with what I would have said, which is basically traveling to me is, like a, is another way to zoom out because you're just looking at your life from far away. You know, it's like you don't, you're not going there to look at your life, but you end up thinking about your life. And for some reason, being far away, being out of your comfort zone and out of your element, you just have fresh eyes on your whole situation. You can have this perspective. You can kind of, it's like going in a helicopter and looking at it from up there and a lot of things make sense. And then I would have also said, couple that with like, kind of like a, a hard zoom in on like reality, which is, which I think you get from, um, I might've said like, wait tables, work construction, just do something where you kind of like, you're just around working people um, and you just, um, I don't know, it just, it, just, it just reminds you what like work is like, what reality is like, what adults you know, go through, and then that can like, help you figure out where you're, about to, you know, where you're about to be and what you want to do. Yeah, for sure. And the, the travel advice, I would not limit to someone just getting out of college. I think everybody, when possible, should have that experience because the benefits outlast the trip because what will happen to most people, especially if you put yourself in very foreign environments where perhaps you can't even read what is written. <laughs> Japan, China, many different examples, right? Whether it's Cyrillic, Arabic, doesn't matter. Uh, and you observe different customs. What happened to me, at least, in Japan, for instance, which is my first real time abroad for a year as an exchange student, the only uh, person who looks like this in a school uniform 
in a high school of 5,000 Japanese kids, right? Pretty easy Where's Waldo game. But I was like, wait, they drive on the other side of the street? That doesn't make any sense. Then I was like, wait a second. Maybe we don't make any sense. <laughs> oh, what? They take a shower before they get into the bathtub? That doesn't make any sense. Wait a second. It makes perfect sense. And I got back, and I realized how many rules we follow are just made up. They're just totally made up. Very fragile, socially reinforced illusions that we just reinforce. And that's very liberating because you realize, wait a minute. Like, if all of these different cultures do things differently... Maybe I don't have to go there to do things differently. I can do that here. Then you start to really question assumptions, and you become, in my experience, more experimental. All right, let's go to another question. What trends, industries, topics are you most excited about right now? Patrick. Patrick? Is Patrick here? Hey, hey Patrick. All right. I like that hi, Tim, applies to both of us. It simplifies matters. Uh, what trends, industries, topics am I most excited about right now? Uh, speaking for myself, uh, trends I'm not watching very closely. Uh, I, I, I have trouble explaining why, really. I suppose I'm not trying to capitalize on any trends because I feel like, particularly having left Silicon Valley and having moved to... Austin, which I love on almost every level. If I'm spotting trends that I hope to capitalize on, by the time you see it, you're too late, <laughs> generally speaking. So I'm not paying a lot of attention to trends. Industries, uh, I am interested, just almost from an academic standpoint, in space travel, not so much from a personal experiential standpoint, but specifically looking at inhabiting planets versus building space stations. That debate is interesting to me because you have some of the smartest humans <laughs> the last 50, 100 years, arguably, with very, very different viewpoints. And whenever that happens in any field, I'm really interested. Uh, you, you see that in quite a few places. Topics, I would say... And this might be considered a trend. I'm hoping to turn it into a trend, which would be scientific research using current cutting-edge technologies to re-examine uh, both psychedelics and MDMA, which I wouldn't strictly consider in the traditional sense of psychedelic, for applications to very debilitating serious conditions ranging from PTSD to resist, uh, treatment-resistant depression, end-of-life anxiety, and so forth. So I've taken most of my energy and capital that went into startups and am redirecting that to scientific research at Johns Hopkins, hopefully other places like UCSF, NYU also, that are taking these compounds that have been used very, very wisely, I think, in certain contexts for millennia by various civilizations and... Uh, applying a scientific lens to understand the mechanisms of action and the risks involved, quite frankly, but how they can be less politicized and stigmatized for unscientific reasons and examined so that we have a better understanding of why they do what they do, which can be pretty incredible. What about you? Trends, industries, topics that you're excited about right now? Um, definitely some of those. Uh, agree with you on getting the stigma off of, you know, uh, perspective-altering drugs, but... Um, I would, uh, I would also add um, 
there's a lot of cool things going on in what a field that also has a stigma called life extension. Um, and the stigma is that it just seems like it's like, you know, narcissistic rich white guys who want to live forever. But the truth is, it's, uh, and, and people think it's vain and this narcissistic kind of thing, but really what, you could just reframe it as, it's if you just cure or learn how to manage like the four things that kill people, basically, which is like heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, cancer, um, it just means that like, and, and, and other things going on in health, like we can just live a lot longer uh, and higher quality later years. Like, who doesn't want that? It's this, like, knee-jerk reaction that, that makes people not even want to put money or time into this industry. But, like, it's, it's, I, I just feel like there were definitely people back when humans lived on average to 40, you know, who would have been like, oh, de- death at 40 is the lot of man, like, living to 80 or so. But, like, now we're all happy about that. No one wants to go back. <laughs> so if, if, if suddenly, you know, I don't know, 140, 140 was the new 90, and 90 was the new 50, like... Who's not happy about that? Like, so, uh, you know, and we always say, oh, because, you know, at that point you're done. Well, that, well that's just because we got used to that. We're managing our own expectations. If we all died at 35, I would be like, well, it's been good. But, like, I'm not like that. I'm all ambitious and excited because I think I have more decades. So um, I think that uh, there's a lot going on. Mark Zuckerberg and his wife are, you know, one of the you know, teams that are trying to cure, cure all diseases by the end of the century. Like, this is just a machine. And the diseases are just a glitch inside the machine. Like, if we can have, you know, enough nanotech and really fancy AI, you know, you know medicine, you know, and everything, we can, we can go in there and fix it. This is a fantastic development. The most heartbreaking thing is someone, you know, that you love dying, especially early. Uh, let's work on that. So I, I think there's a lot going on there, but I think that a lot more would be going on if the stigma of this as kind of like a narcissistic pursuit would just go away. Yeah, to to comment on one thing there, in terms of the, the narcissistic rich people, you everyone should want the narcissistic millionaires and billionaires to spend as much money as possible on this. <laughs> right. You want them to be the people who create the economies of scale for everybody else. And many of the things we take for granted now, like recycling, started off being very hoity-toity affluent experiments. Right? And you, you want them to be spending millions of dollars on something that in 10 years is going to be available for $50 at yeah, CBS. Like plumbing, like sanitation. These things are all rich, you know, rich people things for a while. And like, then everyone benefits tremendously from them. So like, yeah. people also get mad. They think, oh, this is, well, this is just going to benefit like, the rich. It's this unfair thing where like, super rich people will be able to live like, longer. And it's like, yeah, for a while. And then it trickles to everybody because the cost comes down as we get better. So like, get over it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> on that note. Yeah. Moving on. If you want to read some, I think, very interesting thinking related to what might account to life extension or at least death prevention, Dr. Peter Atia is one to pay attention to, one of my favorite people. Uh, (laughs) What is the name of the city everyone must visit before they die? Thanks for everything. Steve. Steve Carell. Not to be confused with (laughs) Steve Carell with the CA. Yeah, it's a great name. It's a great name. Spelled differently. Uh, On my list, I would have to go with Tokyo because it has such an unusual combination of safety, cleanliness, extreme weirdness, and incomprehensibility, even to someone who speaks Japanese, (laughs) that it provides a really uh, unique 
I think I just used that twice, and I'm going to get shit from friends who love to heckle me for using modifiers on unique. They're like, no, there's no such thing as very unique. I'm like, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> I'm going to say it again just to annoy them. It's a very unique opportunity to feel extreme discomfort and confusion with elation with next to no real harmful consequences. <laughs> so I think that provides an awesome learning opportunity and just a fun trip. So I would say, I would say Tokyo is very high on the list. Hey, you stole my answer again. Uh, I was just in Japan all summer, and it's, the, it's, another, it's like going to another planet, and you're like, oh, how, did, how does this civilization live? And you're on another planet. That's how different it is, and just isolated. Western culture has, like, you know, infiltrated so many places, and it just hasn't really there, and they just have done everything their own way. And so you're like, how does the cab door open? Oh, it opens by itself. Then I get in, and it closes by itself. That's really cool. So... I had to give a different answer, I'll say um, Hanoi, Vietnam, just because crossing the street is just crazy. So there's like <laughs> bikes, just like motorbikes, just a sea of them, a sea of them going by, and it, there's no stoplights and it doesn't stop. And the, what you do as a walker is you just walk. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Indiana Jones, like walking over the thing. Um, you, you just walk. And you just, and they figure it out. And the thing, and it, it's unbelievable. It's like, you, you feel like you're like God walking on water or something weird. You just like, you just like walk out and nothing happens. But the thing you don't want to do is like, be a freaked out tourist that like stops. Because then, then, they, then you're doing something they can't anticipate. But you got to try this. So. <laughs> Steady, well-paced strides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Confident. Yes. <laughs> Is it the same there? I didn't go down there. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, he spent some time in Ho Chi Minh. It's insane. I was actually driving the motorcycle down there. And yeah, you just go with the flow or else you die. Yeah. <laughs> go with the flow or else you die. Good, good advice. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. That one would take us both several hours, knowing the two of us. <laughs> oh, I apologize to the person whose name I will not read. Uh, ah. All right, all right. Dear Tim, that applies to both of us. Uh, <laughs> regarding two crappy pages per day, I'll explain what that means. How do you structure your days and weeks when you are working on a book? Thanks, Gene uh, or Jeannie, I'm not sure, V. Either way is fine. All right, I'll, I'll go with both. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure how to respond. <laughs> All right, so the two crappy pages per day, for those who don't know, was advice that I received regarding writing and working on a book, which can be, in my personal experience, a very daunting, intimidating task. And I would get frozen for days or weeks, and I'd try to write something, it wouldn't be perfect, and I'd throw it out. And a mentor of mine, or an author I knew, said, your quota should be two crappy pages per day. And he told me the story about IBM and how they... They demolished the competition by exceeding every sales quota every quarter and just absolutely steamrolling everyone for a long time. And and he asked me, do you know why that is? And I said, no. And he said, because the quotas were low. And then people were unintimidated to pick up the phone to make the calls. Uh, And you can do the same thing with yourself, with writing. And you do that by making 
your bar for a successful day two crappy pages. That's it. Even if you throw them both out, you never use them, you've won the day if you have two crappy pages. And of course, over time, there are days when you just get your two crappy pages, and they are really, truly terrible. And then there are other days where you overshoot, you're in the flow, and you get 10, 15, 20 pages. You don't need so many of those to eventually put together what can become a book. Uh, in terms of structuring my days and so on, uh, I'll, I'll be super, super specific here because the weeks and months basically look identical. And it's just copy and paste of this particular day. I realized for myself that I benefit greatly given historical predisposition to bipolar and all these various things. It's just written in my code. Uh, <laughs> it's a whole separate story. But yeah, it's kind of laughable how predisposed my family is. That writing near sunshine is really important. Uh, so I write books generally during summer months. And my day involves getting up, not super early, but for me, res respect respectably early, which would mean, say, 9 a.m., 9.30, <laughs> before the sun is setting. And I wake up, I meditate for 20 to 22 minutes, which would be typically transcendental meditation or some type of guided meditation. Then I jump in the water, because I'm on Lake Long Island, I jump in the water to wake up, I might do a a little bit of swimming, I hop out, I already have pages from the night before that I want to edit. I will edit during the day, but I, I do my prose generation at night. That's just when I have the best output. But I can edit, do that grunt work during the day. I have printed out pages, I will go into a sauna, which requires all sorts of trickery because you start sweating on the pages, but go into a sauna and I will hand edit those pages. Then I come out, take a quick shower, I have a very small breakfast of some type, typically, say, macadamia nuts and some eggs. Very, very small. And I continue to work very often at a treadmill desk. Right? And the treadmill desk works during this period of time at a very slow pace because, say, in the case of Tribe of Mentors, I'm handling outreach and editing. I'm not going to do comp original drafts and composition at the treadmill desk. Uh, I will work at the treadmill desk this is literally the exact day, and this won't take hours to explain. Then around, say, noon or 1 p.m., hop on a bike with a researcher or someone that I have hired to be with me in the same house at all times. Why is this important? I realize that writing is very isolating for me, and it, tr it can catalyze a lot of negative mental states and downward spirals because I feel alone. So... I have someone physically there, even though we could probably do the work remotely. They have to be optimistic, which fortunately my researcher is. Everything to him is hand clapping. Amazing. <laughs> really good influence to have around. So we both get on a bike. So you'll notice there are, there, there's, there are little bursts of physical exercise inserted in the day. Get on bikes, ride to this very mediocre deli, and we have Mediterranean wraps every day. For those interested, it is whole wheat tortilla with chicken, hummus, tomato, avocado added, always extra cost. And we eat our Mediterranean wraps, and I have unsweetened iced tea plus <coughs> sparkling water. And we will work there until, say, 5 or 6. Sun starts to set, jump on the bikes, sometimes head to the bay, jump in the water again, head home. 
uh, and then have a snack, work for an additional two or three hours, then go to dinner. There are two or three restaurants that we go to, that's it. Those are the rotations. And for all of these restaurants, I'll give a pro tip. Jesus, what a long answer that I said wasn't going to be long. All right. Pro tip for people who might want to do this. Now it's late. We're going out late. We're having dinner at 9 o'clock. A lot of these kitchens close at, say, 9, 30, 10. What does that mean? Staff's going to be fucking pissed that we're coming in right as the door is about to close. And I know this because I worked in service jobs as busboy and waiter in restaurants forever. I get it. So here's what you do. You have three restaurants. You know you're going to be going to them for a few weeks or a few months. You go to the same restaurant for dinner three nights in a row. And then the next restaurant, same place, three nights in a row. Each night, you buy rounds of tequila over and over again for every person who works in the restaurant. Front of house and back of house. Really important. These people will now love you. And they will let you hang out for an extra hour, hour and a half. This is really key. Uh, okay, so we do this. Then we go home, not too much tequila, and uh, we'll continue to prepare things for the next day, go to bed around 1 a.m., say, and then it's Groundhog Day over and over again. That's it. And there are, very often, I would say every other day, uh, some type of kettlebell swings or exercise that is done immediately before leaving to dinner. And it's just that day over and over and over again. Yes, I see your raised hand. From yes, Joanne. Yeah, Jeannie. God damn it! Sorry. Oh yes, yes, yes. So important clarifying question: Do I work where we have lunch? Yes, there are outdoor picnic tables, and we will sit down and work outside. That's actually a fairly key point. But you have to have a high tolerance for mosquitoes and ticks because it's eastern Long Island. So caveat emptor on the Lyme disease or. Uh, Tim? <laughs> Over to you. Um, if you take the opposite of that answer, and it's like, imagine your 16 hour awake is like a amorphous wad of self-loathing. Um, it's basically, I, someone asked me the other day, like, what do you, you know, what do you need with your work? Like, what do you need? And I was like, I need a gnome that will follow me around and like shock me if I'm not working, and, and like when I'm supposed to be working, and they were kind of like, it was kind of, but um, I, um, yeah, no, no, I mean, I mean, this is where you're awesome at and what I admire you for, and well, I, you can also, just to be clear, have really regimented, well-structured self-loathing, just, just to make that clear, continue. But I was like trying to memorize that answer, because I, I want to like, I think, for me, the times when I am being productive, um, I find that it, the two days, of, the two minutes, uh, two pages a day thing resonates with me because for me it's like, if I get it in my, my, my problem when I'm not being productive is that I have this in my head. I'm behind on my stuff, so I need to work 14 hours. I need 14 hours of writing today. Um, and I have done those crazy hours when there's like a crazy panic in my life, so I, I know I can, so I think I can, but without the panic, it never happens. And then Six hours into the day, I've already blown it. I've already blown the day, and you get discouraged, and then you start to self-fulfilling prophecy yourself that, of course, I'm going to blow it. I blew it the last three days, and then... <laughs> so if I do the same thing, I say, I'm going to write three hours today, and then I've had a successful day, it's amazing. All the positive, like, reward pathway feedback that comes in from feeling like you succeeded that day, 
Um, and then that night, you can go to bed on time because I already succeeded today, as opposed to thinking, no, I can't go to bed now. I can't like let this be the, the whole day. I didn't, and that can feed on itself. And something I try to remind myself is like, someone who is three three hours of writing five days a week, but really focused, like phone is away, like deep deep focus writing. 15 hours a week, like, it's shocking how much you can produce. Like, add those weeks together, 40 weeks later, you have a book, right? The difference between the prolific writer and the person, the self-loathing person who doesn't write anything is one does 15 hours a week out of their 112 waking hours a week writing, and the other one does zero out of 112 waking hours. So one-seventh versus zero-sevenths. Six-sevenths of those two people's days and lives are the same. I mean, it is so, people, you know, people who can't put something together, they have this daunting kind of assumption that the prolific writer is fundamentally different. They're just, they just have, they're working constantly all the time. Um, it doesn't have to be that way, but it's the consistency. It is the IBM thing. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way. That's a really great way to put yeah. it. It's so true, too. I mean, most, most, <laughs> most writers I know spend the majority of their time inventing things to do to avoid writing. They're sure. like, but my, my plant's dying. There's, there's really no way that I could possibly... Winston needs another massage. Yeah, I mean, this is an unconstructive environment. The writing's not going to be high quality if I don't polish my tennis shoes. And so on. Uh, very, very true. All right, this will be the, the last question, and then we'll move on to the next phase of this evening. Uh, what experiments, questions, hypotheses are you wrestling with right now? How have they changed over your life? Where do you think they'll take you? Now, we may not have a chance to hit every... <laughs> aspect of this, but let's, let's start with what experiments, questions, hypotheses. Let's, let's start with you, Tim. Shit. <laughs> so nice having his answer yeah. about my answer. What experiments, questions, or hypotheses are you wrestling with right now? And then let's, I'm just going to abridge this and go to where do you think they might take you? Well, it's a little like my last answer. I'm trying to... So my mind is structured, uh, as I explained in the TED Talk you mentioned, um, with there's, a, there's three characters. There's the rational decision maker who's like, you should probably work right now. It's 10 a.m. It's you know, on a Wednesday. Uh, very good time to work. <laughs> then there's the, 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 his pet, the instant gratification monkey, who uh, he, does not, he, has a, he has a different idea. He has a different idea of what 10 a.m. On, on Wednesday is good for. And then there's, a, and the two of them go back and forth, and the instant gratification monkey wins every single time, which leaves me in what I call the dark playground, where I'm like, not working, but I'm supposed to be. Um, and the only thing, the only thing that breaks that cycle is the third character who suddenly wakes up when a deadline gets close, or there's some external pressure, that's the panic monster. And the panic monster freaks the monkey out. The only thing the monkey's scared of, he runs away, and I can get my thing done, and I'm going to die at 45. Um, and what I'm trying to learn how to do, especially since I'm about to start my first book next year, so I like you've done 52 books. I need to like <laughs> learn from this man. Um, is like you know, a book is too big a project. You can't just do that all at once. I, it's like you, it's like at some point you have to learn how to have this internal uh, motivation. And for me, I'm like a you know a caricature of myself. But there's a lot of people in this room who maybe aren't classic procrastinators, but. Uh, without realizing it, if there's no kind of deadline, even if they're not down to the wire with the deadline, the deadline itself just being there is what makes them do stuff. And that's dangerous. 
um, because actually a lot of what's really important in life uh, is that kind of important but not urgent stuff, the stuff that doesn't have a deadline, seeing your friends and family enough, uh, changing careers, improving yourself in the long run. So I think like this whole, these three characters thing uh, applies to a lot of people, applies very much to me. So what I'm working on is trying to just really, really working on uh, having productive days uh, with nothing in the external world making me, because a child uh, is not good at that, and I'm, I, I'm trying to be uh, less of a child. That's my, that's my goal for the next year. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I empathize. <laughs> do you? I do, I do, I do, I do. Uh, <laughs> most productive person in the history of no I'm just really good at showing like the high right the high right wow I got really super when I get tired this is going to get me in all sorts of trouble I actually after spending like a year only speaking Japanese when I get really tired I start to mix up my R's and my L's I'm not shitting you um, wow do you speak Japanese? yeah that's so cool yeah it's a cool language uh, so the, and just so you guys know I'm just going to digress for a second in Japanese, they have they have a syllabary, and the R, L, and D sounds are kind of combined into one thing. That's why they're not aware of the distinction. They kind of got screwed when God was handing out phonemes. They didn't get a lot of sounds. It's really hard for them to learn other languages. It's a bit of a ripoff for them. But uh, I'm showing the highlight reel of like a very mediocre movie. So I'm gonna, you know, it creates the illusion um, that I'm just knocking out productivity all day. Not the case. Which is why when people are like, can we follow you around for a day? I'm like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Because you're just going to be like, are you going to do something? Like, no, man. I'm like, I found some lint in the carpet, and I need to fix this. <laughs> not a good, like, Dances with Wolves experience for the documentary film goer. Uh, all right, so what experiments, questions, hypotheses am I wrestling with right now? Uh, I'm going to make this maybe a little soft uh, around the edges which is not my style. Typically, it's like hard, analytical, quantitative. Uh, but whatever. Uh, so I've spent the vast majority of my life, at best, tolerating myself. It's true. Uh, had had some, some really horrible experiences early on that led me to just decide, you know, sort of self-love was for other people. I could be a really good instrument for competition, though. I could hone myself into an instrument with a high pain tolerance to be really good at certain things. And that was enough. And then I could get my joy or happiness wherever I found that from observing other people. Long story to unpack that fully, but suffice to say, like I accepted a really low level of self-regard and was really, really unforgivingly brutal with myself. I mean, I, I talked to myself endlessly every day. We're talking about decades. In a way that I would never speak to another person. And what I've realized in the last uh, few months, actually, in particular, is that if you want to fully love other people and to make other people feel loved, you can't get away with just tolerating yourself. You cannot. And you have to learn how to forgive yourself for a lot. Uh, but more so than that, for me at least, is to have compassion for earlier versions of yourself that you might view as cowardly or ashamed or weak. And uh, I was introduced to that through something relatively new for me, which is called Meta, M-E-T-T-A, or Loving Kindness Meditation, which sounds super woo-woo. And I mean, the 20-year-old version of Tim would just be vomiting on his shoes right now hearing this. Like, oh my God, really? 
you're embarrassing us, stop it. <laughs> uh, but it, it's been a really profound shift in my perspective and uh, realizing that even if my only goal is not necessarily to love myself, but to do the greatest good I can possibly do with my small amount of time on this planet, that I have to put my own oxygen mask on first. And that's something that comes up a lot in Travel Mentors. Ariana Huffington, Sharon Salzberg. It comes up again and again. And I just want everybody to realize this is part of my, I suppose, new mission of sorts, is for people to realize that if you're feeling damaged or flawed and that leads you to be depressed and to have a really, really low amount of regard for yourself where you're really aggressively brutal to yourself, that the first thing to realize is that you are not alone in feeling that. And in fact, I, certainly not everyone in this book, but I would wager, and this is just speculation in most cases, but a very, very high percentage have incredible demons and are fighting battles that we all know nothing about. But, I mean, really with some very, very dark periods. So A is that you're not alone, and B is that you can actually let go of and repair almost all, if not all, of what you think you should just lock away and forget. So that, I suppose, would be what I'm wrestling with right now and working on and trying to communicate. And uh, there's some really concrete ways you can go about it. I would recommend everybody, certainly, if, if any of that resonates, do yourself a favor, get a book called Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. Terrible title, fantastic book. Give it a read. Uh, it could have a huge impact. Yeah, so a question about psychedelics. I would say uh, that yes is my tentative answer, but I would not recommend that anyone touch psychedelics without professional supervision. There are legal ramifications to consider, and I would take it as seriously as you would choosing a neurosurgeon to remove a tumor that, if misoperated on, would result in a fatality. So a lot of people right now, sorry, man, that's about it. Right now, a lot of people are going on Craigslist and finding neurosurgeons. My friend's a shaman. We just ordered some stuff from the internet from China for ayahuasca. We're going to do it in our slow cooker. Bad idea. Bad, 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 bad idea. Uh, so there are many tools. I don't think that's the only tool. Meditation, silent retreats, which I'm not ready to recommend because I do think they can be extremely destabilizing. There are many, many tools in the toolkit, but the point I want to make is there are tools. And you can start with something that does not involve visiting your ancestors and seeing flashing neon crocodiles in your mind, <laughs> which could be radical acceptance. <laughs> so take a look. Thank you guys very much, and thank Tim for being here.